It was a real privilege a Sunday ago to just receive the ministry of the word as Chandra Lucas preached. We say all the time, Todd and Chandra are some of our favorite missionaries. In addition to that, they are both gifted preachers. We know Chandra's a gifted preacher because we've asked her to preach here a couple of times. I've never asked Todd to preach here. And he's, he's reminded me of that once or twice. Todd, we like you, but we love your wife. <laughs> but I can attest to the fact I've heard Todd preach other times and he does a great job. It was a privilege for me to just sit and receive the word that she had. If you weren't here or if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to get onto our YouTube site and take a look at the service that took place here just last Sunday. This Sunday morning, it's my privilege to kind of get back into the saddle as it were, and pick up in the series of sermons that I've been preaching, kind of where we left off, not kind of where we left off, exactly where we left off, as we've been doing what I'm calling plagiarizing Jesus, just literally repeating the words that Jesus spoke in his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete sermon of Jesus that we have recorded in Scripture. It came early on in his ministry. It's a treatise in a way, on what he means when he talks about life in the kingdom of God. He talked about that so often. The Sermon on the Mount becomes his treatise on, here's what I'm talking about. When I say kingdom of God, here's what I'm talking about. If you recall back several weeks in your memory, you'll recall that at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about how the proclamation of the kingdom of God isn't something we need to worry about or be afraid of. The proclamation of the kingdom of God is good news. And it's good news in particular for struggling people. Then over the course of many weeks, we followed with Jesus bit by bit as we've heard him describe how this kingdom that he came to proclaim takes the ancient laws of God and fulfills them. Fulfills them in a way that causes us to profoundly flourish in this life. There's no need to get rid of the Old Testament. There's no need to get rid of the law. Jesus says, I came to fulfill that, to show you how it's supposed to work in the kingdom. And if you've tracked with us that far, you may at this point be thinking, okay, so the key then, the key to living life in the kingdom is to live a life that is full of good deeds. Follow the rules and make the right choices. And at this point, it might seem to you that life in the kingdom is all about good behavior. But in the kingdom, as is in so many times the case, we find that here we need to go a layer deeper than that. Jesus wants to shine a light on the reasons why kingdom people do kingdom things. And so with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to do what I've invited you to do each and every week. And that is to, rather than read along with me as I read the words of Jesus, they won't appear on the screen. Instead of reading along with me, experience them the way the people on that mountainside would have experienced them that morning. Just listen and imagine yourself hearing the words of Christ as he says this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, 
who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We're going to stop right there and just deal with that much just this day. As we've encountered already a couple of times in the Sermon on the Mount, here we have a passage uh, that has found its way into modern English idiom. Don't toot your own horn, we sometimes say. And that saying is, is likely, at least in part, inspired by these words of Jesus. The left hand doesn't know what the right is doing. There's another expression we have in modern English, and that expression almost certainly is inspired by this passage that Jesus has spoken. Although I find it interesting that in the modern world, when we say the left hand doesn't know what the right is doing, we usually mean it as a negative thing, like there's too much confusion in that organization. But here Jesus seems to be saying it's kind of a positive thing. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Uh, we can... uh, We can parse those things later on. The point is clear. What Jesus is saying is this. Self-promotion is not a virtue in the kingdom of God. Citizens of the kingdom don't need to hire publicists to tell the world about their good behavior. And there is no PR department in heaven. In the year 1993, record-setting rainfall swept across the Midwest again and again and again, beginning early in the year and throughout the spring. By the time the summer of 1993 hit, the farmland in the Midwest was absolutely soaked, and yet it didn't relent. Record-setting rainfall came again and again and again, and the Mississippi and Missouri rivers began to exceed their banks there was absolutely massive destruction in states like Iowa and Illinois and in Missouri. In the summer of 1993, near St. Louis, the Mississippi River peaked at 20 feet above flood stage. There's a wall just outside of the river in downtown St. Louis that stands 52 feet high. And the river came less than two feet from the top of that wall. Had it breached that wall, the entire city would have been flooded. It was flooding on a scale that this nation just hasn't seen in hundreds of years. Destruction on scale from a disaster like that that we had never seen. This was in the summer of 1993. In the fall of 1993, I began college in the city of St. Louis. And I remember in the, the days and weeks leading up to the beginning of school, calling the university saying, so are you swimming? Like, is this going to work? And they, well, we're, we're cleaning up, we're mopping up, you should be ready to go. When I got to college, the peak of the flood had ended, but there was still ongoing destruction. And I joined a, a campus group that early in my first semester ended up volunteering to fill sandbags near a town when one of their levees broke again and floodwaters once again threatened that town. Interestingly enough, the name of the town was Defiance, Missouri. <laughs> And so there we were in defiance, filling sandbags. On the day that we were there, there were news and camera crews there to record that once again damage had been done and once again volunteers were furiously filling and stacking sandbags. And I remember chuckling that day as I watched our team and all the other volunteers working race against time, right, to get these levee walls built back up before the floodwaters came in. It seemed that wherever the camera crew set up, there were a few more volunteers in that area than in any other area. It seemed like if the newscaster said, okay, I want to do a quick spot from right here, all of a sudden a group of the volunteers said, you know what, I'm going to go right over there and help them out in the background. (laughs) 
I laughed about it at the time. I was probably one of them, to tell you the truth. It's okay. That's human nature. People, I think, are naturally hungry for applause, aren't they? They're naturally hungry for acclaim. We want others to know about it if we think we've done something good, especially if that good thing is, is altruistic or, or morally or ethically admirable. We want people to know about it, but Jesus says that kingdom people need to think differently than that. I wanna remind you of the very first words we heard him speak today in Matthew chapter six, verse one. He says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now let's be very clear about what he is and isn't saying there. He's not saying be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. He's not saying it's wrong to do a good deed if somebody else notices. That would be kind of a hard command to follow, right? Because most of the good things we do, we do in community with one another. Can you imagine if I had to say, you know, Nancy, I, I'd like to help you out here, but Jesus is watching, so my hands are tied. I can't do anything for you. You know, that would be counterproductive. He's not saying don't practice your good deeds in front of other people. He's saying don't practice your good deeds in front of other people if that's the reason why you're practicing your good deeds. Don't do it in order to earn their applause. Borrowing from his own idiom, we might paraphrase it this way. When you do something good, don't toot your own horn. In Jesus' day, some of the religious leaders had the tradition of sounding a trumpet blast whenever a large donation was being made to the poor. And Jesus identifies that practice in particular here, doesn't he? He calls it out. He says, for instance, you know, when the, when the hypocrites have the trumpet sound so that everybody notices that, that we're giving to the poor. That's a bad idea. But you know what? He's not just talking about the giving of money or of charitable giving in this passage. He's clearly addressing any act of righteousness or goodness that you might par take part in. And his message is be careful, be careful, kingdom people, be careful about your hunger for approval. In other words, if you want to live according to kingdom principles, it's not merely about being good. You also need to beware of the things that motivate you toward goodness. Beware of the things that motivate you toward goodness. Did it ever occur to you that there are bad reasons to do good things. Isn't that odd? There are bad reasons to do good things. The ends don't always justify the means. Sometimes there are bad reasons to do good things. And as I hold that up like a mirror to my life, I recognize very quickly that one of those bad reasons is pride. Pride is a really bad reason to do a good thing. And pride, I believe, is a huge challenge for citizens of the kingdom, and perhaps especially for pastors. Pastors of churches that love each other well are used to hearing words like, good sermon today, preacher. I really sense the Lord speaking through you on that one. Or, ah, what an anointed time of prayer you led. God blessed me through your words. 
What a friendly church you lead, Pastor. I've never felt so at home. Thank you, Pastor, for visiting me in the hospital. Nobody cares for me like you do. Or, Pastor, we're so glad you could shepherd us through this difficult season. We don't know what we could have done without you. We hear words like that too often, and and if we're not careful about how we receive them, we run the risk of continuing to perform so that we can continue to impress. But you know what? I don't think there were a whole lot of pastors on the mountainside on that morning when Jesus said these things. So I don't think they pertain only or merely or even primarily to pastors. I think Jesus is recognizing that we are all susceptible to finding bad reasons for doing good things. There is something within all of us that is fallen and is broken and it's going to drive us to perform if we let it. I spent roughly the first half of my life literally as a performer. I was a piano player, classically trained in the the music of of the classics, Bach and Beethoven and Mozart. And I spent most of the first 25 years of my life playing in in concerts and recitals and competitions and, and standing up by the piano and taking the bow at the end as the audience hopefully clapped. And if it was a contest, at the end the judge would come up and give me a trophy and they would clap again. And when I got a little bit older, it wasn't so much about the trophy as it was the scholarship, but there was still a lot of clapping and that was very nice, let me tell you. I spent the first half of my life learning how to be a performer. And I discovered something very early in that process, and I want to share it with you. Not all classical music is created equal. You know what kind of pieces of music garner the biggest applause? Oh, it's, it's the big ones with chords with like 18 notes in them and play it at 100 miles per hour as loud as you can, tearing up and tearing down the keyboard as fast as you absolutely can, showing off all your virtuosity and technical proficiency. And when you're done, there's a few loose broken strings hanging out of the piano. You're covered in sweat and the bench is in three or four different pieces because you just spent smacking the snot out of it all the way through. And then you stand up and the crowd goes wild. And I liked that kind of music. I liked that kind of music. Let me tell you, if we got a few classical music buffs in the room here, this is not the music of Bach. Bach is wonderful, but Bach is simple and pure. This is the music of Franz Liszt. This is the music of Rachmaninoff. This is the music of Beethoven, but especially late Beethoven, because I feel like once he got deaf, he got very upset and worked out his issues on the piano, and it's beautiful for us performers. And as a teen and a young man, I knew that there was music in the repertoire that was simple and soft and beautiful and profound. But I didn't like to program that in my recitals because it didn't garner the big ovations that Liszt garnered. I had a teacher in college that challenged me on so many different things. And one of the things that he really, really challenged me with was this. 
Dan, do you love the music or do you love the applause? Do you love the music or do you love the applause? And I think Jesus has a similar challenge for those who would be citizens of God's kingdom. Do we love one another or do we love the applause? We need to beware of what motivates us toward goodness. Does that mean a life of drudgery? Does that mean a life filled with painful toil in anonymity, nothing to show for it, no recognition whatsoever for good work? Is there no joy in the kingdom of God for a life well lived? Well, of course not. And Jesus doesn't allow us to think that that's the case. Verse four in the passage that I read earlier, Jesus says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He doesn't say the father might reward you or the father will take it into advisement or the father will consider this and get back to you and if he's having a good day, perhaps you'll get a bonus. No, he says the father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let me tell you what I believe to be true about God, about his character based on the totality of scripture. God stores up blessings for his people. And he showers them upon us in response oftentimes to our obedience. That's always been his way. I want you to listen just for example to a very specific ancient blessing that God had given to the Israelites as they escaped captivity in Egypt. If you want to scribble this down, you can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 12. God said, if... If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will love you and will bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, your new wine, your olive oil, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, and the land he swore your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or your women will be childless, nor will any of your livestock be without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. How's that for a blessing? How's that for a blessing? Of course, you know the story. The ancient Israelites didn't remain obedient. They didn't pay attention to the laws and they weren't careful to follow them. Their actions demonstrated that they thought living life their own way could yield greater blessings than what God had already promised. And you know what we call that? Not smart. That's what we call it. Not smart. But Jesus encourages kingdom people to be smarter than that. He says, don't make the same mistakes that your ancestors made. Be smarter than they were. And it's smart to seek God's blessing. Did you know that? It's smart to seek God's blessing. It makes sense. It's a good idea. Sometimes I feel like there are those in our number who feel that we're supposed to be maybe a little bit you know, bashful about that. Like maybe we're not supposed to seek God's blessing. Like don't let him know we're kind of interested in being blessed. 
I feel like sometimes there's a counterfeit humility in Christian circles where we feel like the proper thing to say is, don't mind me, I'm not trying to get anything extra. I'm just happy that God's willing to at least tolerate a loser like me. I mentioned to this to you a few months ago, I know in one of my sermons, I'm gonna bring it up again, apparently, and I haven't processed it well enough, but there's a worship chorus that's been popular over the past few years, and it's just always bugged me, because one of the lines in the middle of the verse says, I'm not here for blessing, I just wanna be with you. I'm not here for blessing, I just wanna be with you. And I thought, I don't know that I can sing that in good consciousness, Lord, because I'm here for the blessing. I'm here for the, I'm not here for blessing. I just want to be with you. Can I suggest to you that we cannot separate the presence of God from the blessings of God? We don't get to pick and choose between those two things. We cannot separate the presence of God from the blessings of God. And so there's no shame in my game. I am totally willing to acknowledge I am here for the blessings. It doesn't mean I have bad motives. It means I'm trying to be smart. God had said there is a blessing in this life. I'm here for that. I'm here for that. I want that. And I think it's okay for us to say smart living means going after the blessings that God has promised for us. Do you know, do you understand that Jesus didn't come just so that you could go to heaven when you die? Actually, he was asked to comment about that very issue, and he gave a very interesting answer. Some of you could probably recite it. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come. Why? That they might have life and have it to the full. I want to have a full life. I want to see the blessings of God outpoured in my life. Let me give you a few examples. I don't tithe my income because one day I sat down with my financial planner and he and I decided that, you know, a real good idea here would be if every time you get paid, you just take 10% of it and give it away. Right? Like that doesn't make sense. I didn't come up with that idea. I didn't think it was a good idea. I tithe my income because God said there's a blessing in that. And I want that blessing. I don't submit to other people because it's fun. It's not my fleshly nature. It's not my human nature to say, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to stand back. I'm going to submit. And, you know, that's not natural for me. Actually, my flesh oftentimes wants to do the opposite of that. But God says there's a blessing when we submit one to another. And I want that blessing. So I'm going to pursue it. My flesh certainly isn't always eager to forgive. When I've been harmed, when I've been hurt, Sometimes the last thing I want to do is forgive because I feel like that will make me vulnerable. That will make me weak. That will make me prone to experiencing this pain again. It feels unsafe. But God says there's a blessing in learning to forgive. And so I forgive because I want that blessing. I want to pursue the blessings of God in my life. In one of the classic stories that Jesus told about salvation, He described a father who welcomed home a wayward son. You know the story is the father sees that he's returning home. The father plans a party. He caters the whole thing with the finest food. And he bestows the son with gift after gift after gift after gift after blessing after blessing after blessing. The father longs to lavish his children with blessing. 
It's okay for us to know that. It's okay for us to know that. I was thinking about this just late last night. And the Lord brought to mind a very quotable verse from the Old Testament. In the story of Nehemiah, we're told, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Oh, I've heard that verse a thousand times. When I was a kid, we learned to sing in kids' church. And you did too, some of you. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's just such a happy song, and we would smile, and we the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the... I'm sorry, I'm, what was I supposed to be talking about here? I was thinking about that last night. Hear those words. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I felt like God showed me this. It doesn't say the joy about the Lord is my strength. It doesn't say the joy in the Lord or at the Lord or for the Lord is my strength. It says the joy of the Lord is my strength. Church, whose joy are we talking about? Is it my joy? No, it's not. It's the joy of the Lord. It's God's joy that is my strength. And when I saw that in that light last night, there was a release for me in that moment because I thought, well, that's a good thing. Because if I'm being honest, in the seasons of my life where I feel weakest, where I feel most like I need God's strength to keep on moving, I'm not very joyful. And if God's, I'm sorry, if the strength that I need in my life is dependent on my joy, we've got a problem. But it's not my joy about the Lord or my joy regarding the Lord that gives me strength. It's God's joy that gives me strength. It's the joy of the Lord that is my strength. Now, here's why I say all of that. Let me ask you this. What brings God joy? What brings God joy? I believe nothing brings God greater joy than seeing his created people live as people of his kingdom. Just like in the story that I referenced, the story of the prodigal, when God's children live as citizens of far off foreign kingdoms, he grieves. But when they live as heirs to the realm that he has established for them, he rejoices. The prophets of the Old Testament says, he sings and he dances over his people. And in that story, he tells when the son, Jesus told when the son comes home, what does the father do? He sings and he dances with his beloved son. He rejoices and it's his joy that strengthens us. He lavishes his greatest gifts upon them. I want to live that way. Have you ever pictured God dancing over you? He's an excellent dancer. <laughs> what kind of dance is that? I wonder. I, I, I believe that in the case of my son, Tyler, it's almost certainly the moonwalk. <laughs> God dances. God dances. I don't dance. And all God's people said amen, right? <laughs> Thanks be unto the Lord. Dan does not dance. He does a lot of strange things that we can't account for, but he doesn't dance. And God's like, you know what? 
forget it all. I'm going to cut a rug. I'm going to cut a rug. I'm going to get down with it right now because of the joy I have in my people. I just want to sit in that in a moment, for a moment. Maybe you needed to hear that today. People of God, beloved, subjects of King Jesus, God is getting jiggy over you right now. He rejoices in you. I want to live that way. But sadly, it's not always that easy. The very nature of sin is that it closes us off from the blessing of God. In sin, remember, sin is not always an obvious and overt action. Sometimes it can be a very, very subtle attitude of our hearts or of our minds. And that's why Jesus told us in this passage to beware of the things that motivate you toward goodness. Let me remind you how he finished that thought. He said, if you merely want to impress others, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. And about such people in verse two, he said, truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. They have received their reward in full. In the mid 1960s, my dad owned a forest green hardtop Corvette. I know this because growing up on her dresser, my mom had pictures of her three sons. And on his dresser, my dad had a picture of his Corvette. <laughs> he sold that Corvette when he was planning to get married. Now, don't go after my mom. She didn't tell him to do that, but he made the decision to sell that Corvette when he was planning to get married. I don't remember the price tag. My brothers, who I think are a little bit more upset about this than I am, they probably could tell you exactly what he claims to have sold that car for. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred dollars. <sighs> Can you imagine what that car would be worth today if he had hung on to it, if he had cared for it, if he had you know, restored it and done all the things that one needs to do with a classic automobile? A mid-1960s hardtop Corvette in mint condition. Can you imagine what that would be worth today if he had hung on to it? And can I remind you that he's gone? So like a third of that would be mine? <laughs> I'm sorry, that was probably over the line, wouldn't it? <laughs> sorry, Mom. Can you imagine what that would be worth today? When you have something of value, you only get to cash it in once. Jesus is saying that if we cash in our good deeds for the applause of others, we lose the opportunity to receive what God had in mind for us at a later date. When you have something of value, you only get to cash it in once. That Corvette is of no value to the Martinson family today because we already cashed it in. And so, yeah, it's smart to seek God's blessing but chasing human acclaim edges God out. Chasing human acclaim edges God out. When I was a teenager, uh, the, the sound man 
at the church that I attended had a post-it note stuck on the soundboard. It was just a simple post-it note, but it was there for years and years. I can remember seeing it every time I was there for a rehearsal or for a meeting. He had this little post-it note on the, on the top corner of the sound booth, and it just had those, those last three words written on it, those last three words that I just said, edges God out. But he had the first letter of each one of those words underlined, E-G-O. Ego. Ego edges God out. Earlier I mentioned the word pride. Pretty related concept, don't you think? Hubris. These kinds of things aren't just bad ideas because they're inherently naughty or they're improper or impolite or something like that. It's not just about being a good church lady or church man or something like that. No, these things are much more sinister than we often realize. They actually short-circuit the blessings of God in our lives. Did you recognize that? That my pride has the ability to short-circuit the blessings of God in my life. My ego has the ability to short-circuit the blessings of God in my life, in my life. And as such, things like that are incompatible with a life in the kingdom. Because in the kingdom, the blessings of God were meant to flow unencumbered. But ego edges God out. One of my favorite parts of being a pastor is that oftentimes I get to see good deeds that most people are never, ever going to see. It's part of the nature of, of just the job and the responsibilities that I have. I get to see things. I'm, I'm sometimes privy to things, sometimes big things, sometimes small things, but things that precious saints in the Lord do in service to the kingdom with very few people ever, ever knowing about it. But I get to see it. And I know I don't see it all, but I get to see a little bit. Sometimes it's a, it's a gift that truly was a sacrifice given in secret. Sometimes it's an act of encouragement. Sometimes it's just some help offered behind the scenes to strengthen a brother or a sister. Sometimes it's a very timely word of forgiveness or grace extended. And nobody else is ever going to see it but because I'm the pastor, sometimes I get a glimpse into those things. HRCC, I see you. I see you. I've seen what you've done that no one will ever applaud you for. I've seen what you've sacrificed that no one will ever notice. Not in every instance, but I've seen enough to know your heart. And sometimes in those moments, my impulse is to stand in the bully pulpit and to brag to you about what I've seen, to tell the stories, to celebrate, to give us all an opportunity to applaud the saints, to shine the light on some things that seem praiseworthy to me and ought to be, in my estimation, public knowledge. But most of the time, most of the time, it's not a good idea because that is not how God designed the kingdom to work. I don't want to be the reason that somebody else's blessing got short circuited. 
And so in many cases, we're going to continue to be the church. We're going to continue to be the kingdom of God. We're going to continue to do works of righteousness, as Jesus has said. And very few people are ever going to know about it. Very few people are ever going to have the opportunity to stand and applaud. One of the reasons that so often funerals and memorial services are bittersweet when you're a pastor is because there's a sense of finality to we say goodbye to brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so today and I preach that service and I know things about them that I'd love to celebrate. But Jesus tells me, you know, it would be better for the kingdom if those things just stayed in secret right now. Because that's how that saint would want it. That's how that saint would want it. And that's how I designed the kingdom to work. I'd love to tell the stories. But you know what I believe? I believe there's coming a day, the day of the Lord, when that which has been done in secret will be made known. That which has been done in secret will be made known. We read that in various ways again and again throughout Scripture, don't we? And oftentimes, if you're like me, you read it, and it's a little bit scary. Because the reference seems to be to the hidden things in our lives that we want to keep secret. Now you can air my dirty laundry in front of the whole world. That's a whole other issue. But did we hear Jesus say it again in this passage? Your Father who knows what is done in secret will reward you. Your Father who knows what is done in secret, say he knows, he knows how you sacrificed to care well for somebody else. He knows how you gave of yourself that the gospel might be proclaimed in someone else's life. He knows that you chose, you chose to swallow your pride when everything in you raised to do exactly the opposite. He knows because he knows what is done in secret. And someday, someday, he who knows what has been done in secret will reward you. I want you to rest in that today. I presumed just a moment ago to wag my finger at you all and say, HRCC, I know you and I see you. And I stand by that. I do. I do. To varying degrees and in various ways. But I don't know everything. I'm inclined to say I don't know the tiniest portion of it. But the Father knows. He sees you. He sees you. He sees you. He knows what you're going through. He knows the desires of your heart. And he has storehouses upon storehouses upon storehouses of blessings for you. Do not be weary in well-doing. Do not grow tired of a faithful, steady obedience in the Lord. Do not get to the point where you say enough is enough. 
because at the proper time, you will receive, you will receive, you will receive the blessings that God has laid out for you. Do you mind if I just mix my verses all over the place here for a moment? About those blessings, you can't even imagine. No eye has seen. No ear has ever heard. And your feeble, silly, little human minds can't even begin to comprehend a father who would kill the fatted calf and place his robe over you and put his own signet ring on your finger and give you slippers <laughs> and say, come rejoice with me. This is my beloved and I am so well pleased. Church, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Father, we thank you for the reminders of your goodness today. Oh, Lord, put to death that ugly, evil thing in us that would try to leverage our goodness for the applause of others. God, crucify our pride and our ego. Crucify our hubris. It's nailed to the cross, and we need it no more. Lord, put to death that within us that would struggle toward the desire to perform and impress. And conform us into the image of your Son, who opens this kingdom for us, this kingdom in which he now reigns as king over all. Conform us into that image, we pray. Lord, I thank you for the myriad stories of the people of your church, the people of your kingdom. God, it's difficult days for us in this culture. The words Christian are universally regarded as good. But you see. You see. And you know. Thank you that we live our lives under your attentive, protective gaze. I pray, Lord, that your blessing would be upon your people. I pray, Lord, that the, the things that you have in mind first would not be forfeited, that they would not be short-circuited, that they would not be anything less than what you have in store for your people. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to, to uh, the endurance to move forward, to not grow weary, but, Lord, to be the people of your kingdom here described in the Scripture. I thank you for these things. I thank you for these blessings. We give you praise and honor and glory in the name of our King, Jesus, we pray. And everybody says, Amen. Amen.